Hello, friends. Welcome to Weekends. I'm Anna Kasparian, joined by the wonderful, lovely Nando Vila. Oh. Nando, what's up? How are you? It's good to see you. I missed you. I don't like these breaks. I don't, uh, you know, uh, yeah. yeah, the breaks are, it's nice to have time off and all that stuff, but I just, I, I need to see your face and I can't go too long without it. And, and, and now it's, it's good to be back. This guy, you're so sweet, Nando. I've actually felt the same way. Um, I, I think I underestimated um, how much I uh, love, first of all, I, I don't under- underestimate how much I love talking to you, but, um, I underestimate how much this particular show is like the place where, I don't know, I just can like unleash my like mm. thoughts in depth on what's going on in the news. And we're definitely going to do that today, um, in our decode segments. I'm really looking forward to your decode segment about, um, Amazon workers. Um, so we're going to get to that. I'm going to do mine on uh, Nero Tandon, the segment oh. that I've uh, been wanting to do. It's going to be great. Um, lots of sound. I love dunking on Nero uh, Tandon. Dunking on Nero Tandon, you, you know, is just it's 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 what we it's what we need right now. You know, us on the left. Yeah. You know, it's dark times. We we have to take some small pleasures in dunking on Nero Tandon. It's it's great. You know, so I'm very excited. Yeah, definitely. For your Definitely. And uh, our interview segment today is going to be fantastic. Um, We're going to have Corey Robin on, who's a political scientist, and uh, he has a theory regarding Republicans and power that I think is really important to kind of counterbalance the narrative that we've been hearing in the mainstream press regarding uh, Trump and the Republicans. Um, And it's a perspective that I think was controversial, but I mean, evidence bears out uh, what he argues, that the Republican Party, conservatism specifically, is actually incredibly weak when you look at the mm. historical context. Um, so I loved uh, reading some of his work and, and watching some of his interviews, and we'll do our own interview later today. Uh, but before we get to all of that stuff, I just wanted to quickly mention a tweet that caught my attention, and it had to do with uh, this ongoing battle within the Democratic Party. So Nando, as you know, There's this battle between uh, the very small progressive arm of the Democratic Party and pretty much the corporate arm of the political uh, of the uh, Democratic Party, which I think is widely represented uh, within the party. And so Democrats sucked in this election. Uh, Sure, they got Joe Biden elected. But when it came to down ticket races, when it came to Congress, Democrats did not deliver. And uh, one person who was expected to lose her congressional race uh, was Susan Collins, right? Mm. Susan Collins got reelected. And then you take a look at what they wanted to blame all of these issues on, right? Corporate Democrats are like, oh, it's because of defund the police. It's because of socialism. Oh, the Republicans attacked us. And somehow the Republicans magically (laughs) wouldn't attack us if it weren't for um, some of the more progressive proposals. Then you see this tweet from Shane um, uh, Goldmacher. Sarah Gideon, who was a Democratic candidate who lost, ended her losing campaign for Senate in Maine with $14,810,000 in the bank. So over $14 million, nearly $15 million in the bank. Why did she like hoard all that money and not do what was necessary to try to win and beat Susan Collins? I mean, she was a vulnerable Republican in the Senate. It's insane. Well, she, she was so vulnerable that Joe Biden actually won the state of Maine. You know, it's 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 like you can't blame uh, Trump on the ticket, right? Like there's other states where Democrats thought they could t- win the Senate seat, but Trump ended up winning that state and he more or less carried uh, the Republican nominee, whoever it was for Senate, across the fish- finish line in Maine. Susan Collins won, the Republican won, 
even though the Republican at the head of the ticket, Trump, lost the state. So really, it's there's no excuse uh, for Sarah Gideon. Um, I mean, it just shows that the, the, the vast amounts of money that was raised by the Democratic Party, I mean, the Democratic rank and file, the, the, the people that, that sort of support the Democrats and, and are actively uh, uh, fans of the Democratic Party, uh, they, they want to do something. They want to do something to help. And the thing that they, they're told they need to do to help by people like Pod Save America and all these people is like, just give money to these Senate races. So like Jamie Harrison raised like a bajillion dollars. Uh, Amy McGrath raised another bajillion dollars in Kentucky. Um, and Sarah Gideon raised a bajillion dollars. And really what it is, it's just a it's just a giant kind of consulting grift in which they raise all this money. They pay it to themselves and their friends uh, to do things like, you know, bullshit TV ads and and like social media strategy. Um, but they don't do any of the actual works of politics, which is like to go out, convince people that your agenda, which is vague and, um, you know, illogical, um, is the one that's going to help their lives. Like they don't do that. They just kind of uh, hoover up money vast amounts of money from regular people who are earnestly trying to help, who earnestly are afraid of the Republicans and Trump and all these bad, bad things that they want to do something to help. And they're just really just grifting off of the, off of that sentiment. And it's, it's, it's very disgusting to be honest. Yeah, it's absolutely disgusting. And then when they lose, they turn around and blame, um, you know, policies that, you know, when you poll Americans, are actually incredibly popular policy proposals, right? Um, you know, decoupling uh, health insurance from your employer. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Who loves being tied to an employer that they might really dislike working for simply because uh, they need their health insurance and leaving would mean that they'd sacrifice that? I mean, it's just, it's insane. And, and to your point about how they don't want to do the work and they have an incredibly vague message, you know, the takeaway, and we've talked about this on the show before, the takeaway by the Democratic Party is now, oh, BLM, defund the police. That was that was mm. bad. You know, we can't support that. So if they're going to, of course, they abandon any type of economic policy that would actually benefit Americans because it goes against what their corporate donors want. So they've abandoned that a long time ago. But then, OK, so they're starting to abandon the identity politics type stuff that they've really relied on to do their campaigning. So what exactly is left? Like, what do they campaign on? Just like what are they men, orange men bad, orange men bad. That really was that was the that was their the main campaign uh, message uh, in, for this cycle, at least. And it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It's 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 it gets you a good, good chunk of the way there to, to point out how awful the right is and to vote against, you know, awful right wing policies gets you a good chunk of the way there. But to really build durable majorities that can actually allow you to govern, you need to present a coherent, positive message that people can latch onto and that speaks to their own self interest. I mean, that is just that is just true in politics forever from the beginning of time. You know, like, that. yes, there is always you can always say that the other people are worse. And that that gets you a good chunk. I mean, Democrats, there are more Democrats in America than there are Republicans. They win the popular vote in almost uh, in almost every presidential election these days. They've won like seven of the last eight um, or five of the last six. I don't remember what they've won a bunch of them. And um, it shows that they, they have more people voting for them, but they don't have enough 
to build the durable and and expansive majorities that allow them to implement some sort of agenda. Um, I mean, the question mm-hmm. is, like, do they even want to implement an agenda? I mean, our friend Danny Bessner wrote a piece in Jacobin uh, kind of with Amber Frost kind of jokingly asking whether the Democrats lose on purpose um, as some sort of uh, as some sort of grift uh, machine. But, yeah, it's uh, it's it's just that's what it is. Orange man bad. Well, Orange Man's gone or will be gone very soon. Yeah. And so um, this is not a good foreshadowing moment, right? Uh, the Biden presidency, based on what we've seen in terms of cabinet picks and people who are involved in his transition team, is not going to be friendly to uh, working Americans, is not going to be, um, you know, essentially a group of problem solvers to do something about the fact that inequality uh, continues to grow in this country. And, you know, his foreign policy picks aren't great either. I mean, it's just all around bad. And so, I, I don't know what's going to happen in four years, but based on the trajectory that I'm seeing, it's not good news for the Democratic Party. Um, and I don't think they really care. I mean, I, I just don't think that they're willing to do what's necessary to actually a- appeal to voters. And and as you've talked about multiple times, Nando, it just seems like they hate their own base. <laughs> like, it's insane. They do. They really do yeah. hate their own base. Um, no. Well, you know who we we don't hate? our own base, our base of operations, the the mothership that funds this show, Verso Books. And, Mm. you know, it's a new month, people. It's December. And in December, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate 50 years of radical publishing, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. In December, Verso selected the best books published from this year, plus Comrades will get our brand new Comrade Canvas tote bag. That's exciting. Looks really cool. The Comrade tier is $20 a month, and if you join in December, you'll get Burn It Down, Feminist Manifestos for the Revolution, edited by Brianne Faz. Long Live the Post Horn by Vigdis Hjorth, called the best post office novel ever written by the New York Times. <laughs> nice. Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula by Laleh Khalili. The Verso Book of Descent, Revolutionary Words from Three Millennia of Rebellion and Resistance. Plus, the Verso tote bag with Comrade in elongated black type on the front and the Verso logo on the back. Look how cool that bag is. You want it. You need it. Friends, join the Verso Book Club. It is a pretty stylish bag, I must say. I- I'm it's cool. It. I'm into it. Yeah, I think I might get a Verso tote bag for sure. (laughs) Well, um, I'm also into uh, hearing what's going on with Amazon. Um, So there's a lot of news that I can't wait for you to share with our audience. So go ahead, Nando. All right. Well, the coronavirus pandemic has been a disaster for almost everyone. But one company in particular has made out like gangbusters. Amazon. Basically a gift to Amazon, teaching people who weren't previously shopping online how to shop online and how to consume content over the top. So it's probably been a pretty good tailwind for their businesses, and they should be gaining share through this. That's right. COVID has been a gift to Amazon as people were forced to stay home and thus rely on America's largest online retailer for all of their shopping needs. And the numbers are really, truly staggering. 
Just want to jump in with uh, some Amazon numbers here, guys. Uh, we're going to go into these in more detail, but just uh, a couple of key headline numbers. Revenue, 89 billion, just under that, 88.9. Forecast wow. was for 81.4 billion. Of course, that was already an elevated uh, forecast. And that 89 billion in Q2 revenue meant that Amazon made $5.2 billion in profit in a single quarter. And then in Q3, its profit went up to $6.3 billion. Remember, that's per quarter. So you can multiply that number by four to figure out more or less annual profits. And of course, all of that has been very, very, very good for Amazon's chief executive and the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos loves coronavirus because it has helped him become the first person to ever have $200 billion. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yes. In 2020, Jeff Bezos became the first man to ever be worth $200 billion. Congratulations, Jeff. But if there is one thing that is keeping Jeff up at night, no, it's not his extramarital affair and subsequent divorce. It is the fact that workers in one of his many warehouses, the backbone of Amazon's business model, have decided to form a union. This card is about dignity respect, and fair treatment in your workplace. It gives you the opportunity to say, hey, Amazon, we would like a seat at the table. And thank you, and we support you. AmazonUnion.org. Let them know it's time to make a difference. And we're here for you, not Amazon. And it's coming in one of the reddest states in America, Alabama a right-to-work state, specifically in a town called Bessemer, Alabama, which in 2019 was called the worst city to live in Alabama by a website called 24-7 Wall Street. It says, quote, based on a range of measures related to affordability, economy, quality of life, and community, Bessemer ranks as the worst city to live in Alabama. The violent crime rate in a small northern Alabama city of about 27,000 is a staggering 2,986 incidents per 100,000 people, nearly six times the state violent crime rate of 524 incidents per 100,000 people, and the poverty rate in Bessemer is a staggering 29.7%. And in March of this year, Amazon decided to open up a warehouse in Bessemer. They probably never expected that this warehouse was going to lead the first serious unionization campaign at the company since 2014. You see, Amazon is virulently anti-union. And while a lot of its European workers are unionized, all of America of Amazon's American employees are not. So it's hard to overstate just how dramatic it would be if these workers succeeded in their fight to unionize. So far, they've gotten past the first hurdle, getting enough of them to sign union authorization cards so that they can file with the National Labor Relations Board, which will then rule on whether they can vote. Should they succeed, they will strike a blow inside the corporation that is arguably the most dominant force in American life today. As CNBC's Jim Cramer hilariously points out in his next clip, Amazon is less a corporation and more of a corporate nation state. Has Amazon not become a country during this period? It's putting a lot of people to work. It's got uh, far flung into many different uh, businesses. It's got social policy. It's uh, international diplomacy with France. I mean, I find that this is one not only did Alphabet uh, uh, become a casualty of this, I think, but Amazon's become a huge beneficiary of this period. I mentioned Alphabet just because they said yesterday they're slowing down their hiring. Amazon increasing their hiring. Uh, Amazon is is it's either the Grim Reaper for everyone 
or the greatest thing that's ever happened to the American consumer, and or maybe both. And he is right. Amazon is undeniably great from a consumer standpoint, but it is also the Grim Reaper. Because of its sheer size, it's been destroying business after business as it finds new industries to conquer. But the real victims of Amazon are not the myriad brick-and-mortar retailers it has burned to the ground, the workers who form the core of their business strategy, which is basically insanely fast delivery times. You have security cameras right behind you at all times uh, that are looking at you uh, 24-7. And if you don't meet standards or their rates, you're out the door. You're just disposable. Every worker has a scanner at all times that basically track exactly where you're at. And they have a little blue line at the bottom of the screen. And it has, like, how many seconds that you have to have it done by the time it hits zero. And it puts you into panic mode. And pretty much you can't talk to people. You can't be in the same aisle as them. You just constantly have to sit there scanning like a robot all day long. If they catch you not scanning, you get a write-up. And what they're doing is they're producing this massive data that they are using to be able to analyze the entire workforce. And Amazon has hired 427,300 workers this year alone. That comes out to a mind-boggling 1,400 new hires every single day. Because of its massive size, a unionization drive within Amazon would represent a seismic change in American politics and really American society as a whole. But of course, Amazon will do everything it can to thwart any unionization drive because, according to them, it's fine. Their workers are great. They don't need a union. Amazon wouldn't tell us how long fulfillment center workers stay on the job or how often they're injured. But workers we spoke to say the rates are higher than other warehouses and that the company rebuffs attempts to unionize. We do not believe unions are in the best interest of our customers, our shareholders, or most importantly, our associates. This is a clip from a video the company says it used in the past to teach managers about employees' rights and labor laws. The most obvious signs would include use of words associated with unions or union-led movements like living wage or steward. Early on, Amazon took a position to to basically be anti-union. Why was that decision made? Uh, I don't think we made the decision to be anti-union. We just feel that all of the things that that unions would uh, would want to uh, to get us to do, we've already done. Yeah, <laughs> they've already done it. Hey, remember how I said that COVID has been great for Amazon's profit and Jeff Bezos' net worth? Well, it's not like their workers have seen any of those gains or, or much of those gains. When the coronavirus first hit, the company announced that it was bumping up its pay by $2 an hour to keep their workers coming back, a sort of emergency hazard pay. But that ended in May, and the, com- the company has no plans to reinstate it. Meanwhile, as many as 20,000 Amazon workers have been infected with the virus. And when one, empl- one employee staged a protest to try to implement safer conditions, 
he was fired. Not a good look and a lot of bad press is coming out of this for Amazon, unfortunately. One of their workers in Staten Island, he was a fulfillment center assistant manager. He was fired yesterday after staging a walkout in protest of the health conditions that were present there in that facility. His name is Chris Smalls. And he called the conditions, according to Bloomberg, horrific. He's been with the company for four years. He said that the workers were having to do their jobs with no masks, no gloves. Um, and also the, there were no masks or gloves for the cleaning crews that were cleaning the facilities. And in response, Amazon's general counsel had some choice words for Chris Malls, the worker that was fired. He just wanted some basic safety precautions, but to Amazon's general counsel, that was just way too much. He said, quote, he's not that smart or articulate. And to the extent that the press wants to focus on us versus him, we will be in a much stronger PR position than simply explaining for the umpteenth time how we're trying to protect workers, said David Zapolsky, Amazon's general counsel, in the meeting notes, which Vice News reports were forwarded throughout the company. We should spend the first part of our response strongly laying out the case for why the organizer's conduct was immoral, unacceptable, and arguably illegal in detail, and only then follow with our usual talking points about worker safety. Zapolsky continued, make him the most interesting part of the story, and if possible, make him the face of the entire union organizing movement. So think about that for a second. The company makes more than $5 billion per quarter in profit. But its workers got a temporary increase of two bucks an hour while risking their lives by working through a pandemic. Rest assured, if they had a union, Chris Smalls would not have been fired. And they'd be getting a much bigger chunk of those profits that are now going to fund Jeff Bezos' giant clock that will tick for 10,000 years. No, seriously, that's a, that's a real thing that he bought. So tell me about a 10,000-year clock. Okay, the 10,000-year clock is invented by a brilliant uh, man named Danny Hillis. He invented this idea way back in 1984, and the idea is it's a symbol of long-term thinking. It's literally a mechanical clock of monumental scale being built inside of a mountain in West Texas, not far from Blue Origin's New Shepherd Lodge site, and um, it, you know, sort of, you know, ticks once a day and, you know, dongs once a century and the cuckoo comes out once a millennium, that sort of thing. The cuckoo comes out once a millennium. Yeah, symbolizes long-term thinking. I get it because it's a clock that goes for a long time. Anyway, Amazon is doing everything it can to bust this union. And to aid in their efforts, the company has hired the law firm Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, quote, the premier anti-union lawyers, according to Rebecca Givan, a labor studies professor at Rutgers University, Amazon used Morgan Lewis when it successfully fought off a union representation bid by a small group of equipment maintenance and repair technicians at its Middletown, Delaware warehouse in 2014. It also is turning to the playbook that companies often use to fight union drives, Givon said. One tactic pushed to include more workers in the proposed bargaining unit to make it harder for the union to reach those workers. To file its NLRB notice, the RWDSU, the union that uh, these Amazon workers are trying to join, needed to have cards authorizing it to represent workers in collective bargaining signed by at least 30% of the proposed negotiating unit, which it claims is 1,500 workers. Amazon, though, argued in its filing that the proposed unit totals are 5,723, though it didn't explain how it came to that figure. And the other trick that the company tried to pull was to delay the actual date of the vote, to give it more time to organize its anti-union campaign and capitalize on campaign fatigue on the part of the workers. 
And they did, the ju- they did just that. They asked the NLRB to delay the vote, which was scheduled for December 11th to sometime after the holidays in January. But the NLRB somehow denied Amazon's petition, and now the vote will be held on December 18th. So mark your calendars. But more ominously, though, a leaked document obtained by Vice's motherboard showed that Amazon had hired Pinkerton spies to keep tabs on their unionized workers in Europe. And according to the source who leaked the documents, they're also using them in the United States. Lauren Cowrie-Gurley is a staff writer who broke this story. When I spoke with her earlier, I asked her to explain what these documents say about how Amazon keeps an eye on employees. It involves collecting data, it seems, from Facebook groups, from social media. Um, In some cases, in the case of the Pinkertons, there is a line in one of the documents that we've obtained that says that Pinkerton operatives were inserted into a warehouse in Rocklaw, Poland to gather intelligence on what their warehouse workers were up to. They believe that some people were tinkering with the application interview process. So some people were sent in to figure out what was going on. This leak focuses on Amazon's operations in Europe. How likely is it that the company is doing similar things in the U.S.? So our source told us that they do the same thing in the U.S. They sort of create, they gather the same intelligence. Yeah, you know, as Al Swearingen said in Deadwood, the Pinkertons are just muscle for the bosses, as if they didn't have enough muscle already. Now, the story of these Amazon workers in Alabama trying to unionize has gotten little attention in the press outside of Alex Press at Jacobin. The only real coverage has come from the Washington Post, and it's been shockingly sympathetic to the union, given the fact that Jeff Bezos himself owns the Washington Post. And the only major political figure to speak out in favor of the workers has been, of course, Bernie Sanders. When the news broke, he tweeted, If Amazon workers in Alabama, a strong anti-union state, voted to form a union, it will be a shot heard around the world. If they can negotiate higher wages and better working conditions in the South, it will benefit every worker in America. I strongly support their efforts. And then he followed up with, All workers are entitled to decent wages and working conditions, which is why I stand with the Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama exercising their constitutional right to form a union. Mr. Bezos, the wealthiest person in America, must not interfere in this election. Remember, it was Bernie's relentless campaign in 2018 that contributed greatly to Amazon raising its minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, Amazon is the second largest employer in the United States after Walmart. But if current trends continue, it will soon become the largest employer in the country. The chief executive is the richest man in the world and owns the newspaper of record in the capital of the most powerful country in world history. And he clearly has plans to some sort of world domination. He's got a 10,000-year clock, for God's sakes. And in a time when the left has suffered electoral defeat at the hands of neoliberal centrism, Our main focus has to be to organize working class institutions that can exercise power. A union movement in the South within Amazon would be transformative in ways that we can scarcely imagine. It's an uphill battle for sure, but it does point the way forward. That was great. Um, Wow. (laughs) Just... It's kind of incredible how far uh, these companies will go to um, spy oh, yeah. on their employees, to, to, to squeeze every bit of what they refer to as productivity out of them, um, even at the expense of their health. And, you know, the one thing that I wanted to just quickly mention was the 20,000 employees who got sick from coronavirus. You know, 
It's so infuriating because at this point, it really is dependent on on citizens and workers to uh, demand change, which is why it's so important this is happening. Because when you look at congressional lawmakers, when you look at even Democratic leadership, they're very much willing to sign on to stimulus legislation that clears corporations of any liability associated with their employees getting sick from the virus. Yeah. Right. And you should keep that in mind, not just in regard to this um, Amazon story, but that story about the Tyson meatpacking plant that like haunts me <laughs> at night when I'm thinking about how these managers were literally upstairs taking bets on how many of their employees would get sick and potentially die from the virus. Like human lives are not in any way valuable to them. And the turnover is so high because, hey, if you don't play ball, we'll just replace you with someone else. Um, and yeah, I know. And, and as I was, the word, yeah, good, good. I just wanted to mention one other thing. Um, yeah. it's also important to keep, uh, the third parties that get hired out to do the deliveries for Amazon as well, because they're certainly underpaid and, um, th- their bodies go through a lot, a mm-hmm. lot to deliver those packages. Um, so, you know, I- I'm glad that the warehouse workers in Alabama are, are organizing and-, and doing something about the injustices that they've been experiencing at the workplace. But Amazon is so gigantic that their, uh, their practices impact workers across the board, including those who are doing these deliveries. Yeah. And it was, you know, I, as I was research, researching this segment, I mean, I had to leave a bunch of stuff out because if not, it would have been too long. But like just the stories of, of the working conditions in these Amazon warehouses are absolutely horrifying. I mean, there's there's cases of like, you know, the average kind of Amazon fulfillment worker and sometimes um, walks as much as 15 miles a day, you know, as part like going walking up and down the, the warehouses. I mean, it's 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 really it's it's really horrific and of course like jeff bezos and and amazon is kind of seen they're seen as kind of good liberals like they're they're in good standing with the democratic party um and the sort of liberal establishment in america you know he was like anti-trump he you know he clapped back on a few things and and like you know the liberals went crazy and he 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 really is like jeff bezos to me is like just he's so clever at how he sticks his fingers in power sec in, in in the levers of power to manipulate them so uh, you know like there's 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 this thing that i that i left out that i that i've thought about including but it's he, he has this habit of donating to big charities for example using amazon stock you know instead of like cash he uses amazon stock which means that the the charities um and these nonprofits now are interested in amazon stock going up you know because it yep. it, it affects them so like he's tying the you know the self interest of these organizations, a lot of them like good liberal organizations, into the success of Amazon. You know that's how he buys them off. Essentially, it's not just a straight yes. cash like play for play. It's literally hitching their fortunes to Amazon stock price. So no, it's and, brilliant. It's actually a yeah. brilliant PR strategy. It's right? amazing. Yeah, yeah, and because you know, it 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 includes it includes the the action that a lot of wealthy people in this country like who have done horrific things uh resort to to launder their reputation right yeah. they'll they'll give to charities uh they'll put their names on buildings on college campuses all sorts of nonsense in order to look like they're the good guys they're really helping oh look at how philanthropic they are with their uh resources do we really need government regulation when we have all this uh philanthropy going on um but at the same time he couples that 
with, you're right, the very vested interest that these charities are now going to have with the uh, stock value going up. Yeah. And, and the other thing that like there's there's been a lot of debate um, in the last few years around sort of monopoly versus anti-monopoly. And it seems very clear that, you know, that there is some sort of trend towards uh, consolidation and larger and larger firms with more power, you know, like and Amazon is kind of like the, the classic you know example of that. And, but in a way, um, the fact that they're so large makes them more vulnerable to something like a unionization drive in the sense that. They have to have all these workers in the in these warehouses. They they can identify with each other. Like if something happens in Alabama, then an Amazon fulfillment center in somewhere else in the country can be like, oh look, they did it. You know. Whereas if it was different, com- like you know, smaller, medium sized companies, like one unionization drive in, in any one of these wouldn't necessarily have the same kind of ripple effects. But because there's just one employer, like one node of power to 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 like tickle, so to speak. Um, you know, if, if, if they're able to do that, then it, it, it they, their ripple effect and, and their, their ability to exercise power is much greater. So they're in a way they're like a victim of their own size or a potential victim of their own size, because this, this hasn't happened yet. You know, this is still like a very, very early stage. And I want to be clear, like they, they, these workers face a massive uphill battle. I mean, the vote is on December 18th. There's no guarantee that they will, that they will actually do it. And then it, it'll be interesting to see what happens after that if they do succeed um like what how amazon responds um but it is the seeds of something it is the sort of early uh seeds of something that could potentially be very transformative like i said because amazon is so big and powerful like if you kind of take down the beast well it's easier to you know than 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 to take down you know like a million smaller beasts if that makes sense Yeah. And if you're an Amazon worker who's watching this right now, uh, let us know what we can personally do to help, uh, you know, to mitigate uh, some of the disinformation that's likely to come from uh, your employers uh, regarding unionizing. Um, Because I think you're right. Even if they fail uh, in December, which I really hope they don't, it does plant a seed, right? And so I think that the the will is there. It's just about it's it's what we talk about all the time, making sure that we build institutions that can help kind of fight back against um, all the different dirty tricks that um, employers like Amazon are likely to play uh, in order to discourage um, them from unionizing. I mean, we saw a lot of that in California when it came to Prop 22. Yeah. You know, so um, don't think that Amazon isn't going to uh, put as much money as possible behind uh, squashing this effort. Yeah. Um, Well, one effort that we also need to think about squashing is uh, including Neera Tandon in any type of position (laughs) of power within Biden's administration. And shockingly enough, uh, Republicans might be the ones who save the day (laughs) um, in preventing Neera Tandon from um, being in Biden's administration. But let me give you the details on that because I've been dying to talk about this. So in a giant middle finger to progressives, Joe Biden has announced that he wants Neera Tandon to be the head of the Office of Management and Budget, an incredibly powerful and important position within the federal government. And to be clear, Tandon certainly uh, does not have a friendly relationship with progressives, despite the fact MSNBC inaccurately describes her as one. Now, uh, she has gotten into many battles with progressives on Twitter. Maybe that's part of the reason why she's been deleting thousands of her own tweets ever since uh, Biden made this announcement. Um, But I do want to remind you of just how physical her hatred uh, for progressives has gotten in the past. Watch. 
Uh, Tandon had a strongly worded letter addressed to her from Senator Bernie Sanders just last year, who wrote this. The Center for American Progress leader Neera Tandon repeatedly calls for unity while simultaneously maligning my staff and supporters and belittling progressive ideas. Tandon has had a combative relationship with progressives, not just politically, but also physically. Tandon is accused of punching Faz Shakir, Biden, uh, Bernie's 2020 campaign manager, in the chest back in 2008 when he asked her a candidate Hillary Clinton a question that Tandon did not like she says she did not punch him she pushed him so she's admitting to getting physical with someone she disagrees with um but even though there are some real substantive policy disagreements between corporate democrats like Neera Tandon and uh progressive voters you know you can always rely on corporate Democrats to try to rebrand the situation as something that it's not. You can always rely on them to latch on to allegations of sexism or what have you, you know, the identity politics in order to squash any legitimate criticisms that uh, leftists or progressives might have. And here's Andrew Gillum doing just that. As we hear the unfolding of the attacks against Neera Tandon, Please suspend with this. She's, you know, the ultra left wing of the Democratic Party establishment. That's not what that is. What they are challenging is a strong, brilliant, powerful, savvy, experienced woman calling them on the carpet using facts. That's really funny because I have yet to see her use facts in responding to the very real material concerns uh, that Americans have, uh, that the left has essentially brought up in debates with Neera Tandon. And so right now, why don't we go ahead and just debunk that narrative that we heard from Andrew Gillum? And I'm sure we're going to hear from other uh, corporate Democrats who think that Neera Tandon is fantastic. There's nothing wrong with her. And she's, she's truly a progressive who wants to do the right thing. When you look at her record, and more specifically, when you look at who funded the Center for American Progress, which she is the president of? It is abundantly clear that she is not in any way a progressive, even though she touts herself as being one. So let's start off by looking at the funding for this think tank. And if you go back uh, two weeks, I did a segment specifically talking about the very purpose of think tanks. It really is just a one-stop shop uh, to push out corporate policy proposals, and to do all sorts of political laundering for things that are actually incredibly damaging to this country. So uh, the Washington Post wrote a piece about who exactly funds this think tank, the Center for American Progress. And here's what we know. Top donors include Walmart and Citigroup, and also include the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, which represents leading biotech and biopharma firms, and Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. Other large cap donors include Goldman Sachs, the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, Bank of America, Google, and Time Warner. So the Center for American Progress, under Neera Tandon's watch, was raking in corporate money, raking in foreign money. And the influence of that money certainly showed. It showed in how Neera Tandon consistently attacked policies that were incredibly popular, like Medicare for All. It showed how she uh, would, on one hand, refer to herself as a progressive. On the other hand, viciously attack progressives and the policies that they were desperately fighting for. And um, you can see uh, some very specific statements from Neera Tandon in regard to cutting government programs 
that help uh, the elderly, that help the poor, government programs that we've paid into through our taxes. In fact, back in 2010, uh, when Barack Obama and Joe Biden were very much on board with cutting um, what they referred to as entitlement spending, Neera Tandon um, explained why she thought that was a great idea. Watch. There's a viewer here who wants you to take us deeper into entitlements mm-hmm. uh, by Twitter. Ms. Tandon, do you know what the president means when he says entitlements are on the table? Any specifics and anything you would endorse? Yeah, I mean, so there are a range of entitlements um, that, you know, I think when we're talking about entitlements, we're talking about Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. These are programs that, um, that uh, people receive support because of the status that they have. So when after 65, you get funding from Social Security and Medicare. Um, actually, it's grown, it's going getting older for Social Security. But uh, and you know the president has 300 billion dollars in his budget in cuts in Medicare. Um, that comes on top of cha- cuts in Medicare from um, the Affordable Care Act. So he has put specific cuts in the budget already in Medicare, um, and they had savings in Medicaid in the past. Um, I think the question really is, if we're going to have a deal to address long-term deficit reduction, we need to put both entitlements on the table as well as taxes. It's unfair to ask only middle-class Americans to bear the burden of our deficits. Middle-class Americans actually didn't create the deficits. Um, so I think the challenge is that we should have entitlements on the savings, on on the entitlements, and uh, the Center for American Progress has has put forward ideas on proposals to reform the beneficiary structure of Social Security. Some of our progressive allies aren't so aren't uh, as excited about that as we are. But we've put those ideas on the table. But we only th- we think that those are legitimate ideas that need to be put part of a proposal where everyone's at the table. Yeah, that's right. I mean, come on. I mean, we can't just ask, uh, you know, the wealthy to sacrifice. We need to ask the poor, uh, the elderly, the disabled to really sacrifice. And what's amazing to me is that one of the tenets of Obama's Affordable Care Act was expanding Medicare, right? This is the policy that corporate Democrats are so defensive of. But then you hear Neera Tandon in that interview talking about the need to cut funding for Medicare um, ta- as As Walker Bragman wrote in the Daily Poster, and I highly recommend reading his entire piece, Tandon touted her think tank's 2010 proposal to reduce Social Security benefits in 2012, as Biden was pushing for such cuts in the Obama administration. How fantastic. Uh, The organization also cautioned that Social Security is showing its age and warned that progressive ideas like lifting the payroll tax without addressing other problems in Social Security's benefit design would be a mistake. One of the solutions it proposed was something known as chained CPI. And essentially what chained CPI did was slow down the growth of Social Security benefits. And essentially what it would do is cut Social Security benefits by as much as 2% on average per year which would be devastating for so many Americans, so many elderly people in this country. Uh, but that was what she had advocated for on behalf of the Center for American Progress, which again was funded by these massive corporations that certainly want to continue cutting taxes. And in order to do that, you cut programs that people need in this country. Now, um, after the Affordable Care Act passed, uh, Tandon again justified cutting funding for government programs. Watch. And uh, 
part of what animated the president was the long-term deficit and debt issues around health care and why one of the most important issues for the president was to ensure that there were savings in the second decade and dramatic savings and it put us on a better cost trajectory. But I think the fact that leadership came together to tackle a large problem, obviously uh, there was a lot of disagreement about that. And you know, one of the big problems we faced, and I think people in the commission should realize they'll face as well, is that we faced an opposition that both said we need savings in the system and you need to cut costs and your rationing. So remember, she has been nominated by Biden to head the Office of Management and Budget. And this is what's supposed to be somewhat of an independent government agency that puts out research regarding policy proposals. And who's to say that Neera Tandon, or at least the Office of Management and Budget under Neera Tandon's watch, wouldn't put out research arguing that certain government programs are too costly, that they need to be cut? These are real issues that people should be concerned about, and it has nothing to do with Neera Tandon's gender, it has nothing to do with where she comes from, has nothing to do with her background. It has everything to do with the corrupting factors that have led to the policy proposals that she's put out there in the past, and it has everything to do with why she's so vicious toward the left. Deleting tweets isn't going to erase that. Everyone knows it. Everyone's seen it. And regardless of what you delete online, um, there's always a record of what you've put out there. Now, since the Center for American Progress was heavily funded by pharmaceutical companies and biotech firms, it's pretty unsurprising that someone like Neera Tandon would not think of healthcare as a right, but more of a commodity. Watch. We sh- there are steps we can take to build on the Affordable Care Act to meet the goal of ensuring health care for every American. And there has been important steps on costs, on savings and costs, but there are other steps we can take, which is what our language, what the language in the platform has today. But I want to say that I would like to offer language acknowledging that Democrats all agree that health care is a right and that it's not a privilege, that it is something that every American should have, every person should have. Uh, you know, I, I completely agree that this has been a right that we have fought for, presidents have fought for year in and year out. But it's not a right. Uh, it, I mean, it should be a right. It is not a privilege to ensure that people in your country um, don't die uh, from getting sick, are able to go get an annual checkup, are able to, uh, you know, live a decent life without going bankrupt uh, as a result of getting sick. But she has fought the Affordable Care. I mean, she has fought Medicare for All uh, in support of the Affordable Care Act while also supporting cuts that would help keep the Affordable Care Act functioning. It's just incredible when you do a deep dive and you look at what she's advocated for, what she claims she advocates for, and how the very policies that she supported and pushed for um, actually go against what she allegedly wants for this country. And then, of course, when you look at her foreign policy, it's pretty awful as well, especially when you consider that the Center for American Progress was taking in foreign money. Why is that okay? Why is it okay to take money from the UAE? And uh, first of all, if I can remember correctly, Democrats were 
you know, pushing all of these conspiracy theories about Russia's involvement and influence in the United States and its elections. Why are we okay with the UAE having any input in what we do with our foreign policy? How are we allowing them to fund think tanks, which then go and lobby Congress for policies that are favorable to what the UAE wants? Now, uh, we've seen this play out in specific examples as well. As Glenn Greenwald wrote in The Intercept, emails show Tandon arguing that Libyans should be forced to turn over large portions of their oil revenues to repay the United States for the costs incurred (laughs) in bombing Libya on the grounds that Americans will support future wars only if they see that the countries attacked by the United States pay for the invasions. It's very (laughs) Trump-esque. You know, Trump says, I'm going to build the wall and we're going to make Mexico pay for it. I mean, it's a similar type of logic that we heard from Neera Tandon years prior to uh, Donald Trump uh, campaigning. And then after one um, cap official, Faz Shakir, noted how perverse it is to first bomb a poor country and then make it turn over its revenues to you for doing so, Tandon argued that this made a great deal of sense, meaning that no, no, no. Asking them to hand over their oil revenues absolutely makes sense. Uh, by the way, how did uh, Libya turn out for you? Totally destabilized the country. Absolute disaster. To then go and ask Libyans to pay us for what we've done is insane. Um, now, CAP also served as a propaganda vehicle for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu back in 2015 when Netanyahu was furious with Obama for negotiating with Iran and uh, agreeing to the Iran nuclear deal. Here's a little bit of what that propaganda looked like. Meanwhile, the Center for American Progress, a leading progressive group with close ties to both Clinton and Obama, held an event this week hosting Netanyahu in Washington. That decision reportedly prompted a revolt from some staffers, angered that a liberal group would give Netanyahu a platform. In his opening remarks at the event, Netanyahu told attendees he wanted to speak to a progressive audience. I'd like to talk to a progressive audience about progressive values. Yeah, I'm I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did want to talk to progressives. Now, uh, there was a revolt uh, within the Center for American Progress. Matt Duss, a former foreign policy analyst at CAP, said the idea that CAP would agree to give him bipartisan cover is really disappointing since, quote, this is someone who is an enemy of the progressive agenda, who has targeted Israeli human rights organizations throughout his term and was reelected on the back of blatant anti-Arab race baiting. But if anyone at the journalistic arm of the Center for American Progress, a publication known as Think Progress, wrote anything critical about the Israeli government, well, they would get a stern talking to, as you're about to find out in this next clip. The basic story was that we got attacked by a group of right-wing pro-Israel advocates uh, over a period of several months, and instead of kind of standing behind uh, our work, CAP's leadership, Uh, turned around and went to the same groups uh, that were attacking us and in an attempt to curry favor with them said, well, we'll tamp down these criticisms of Israel. And as you said, how do you know they said that? Sorry. How do you know they said we'll tamp down these? Well, it was it was clear in the emails that that were leaked that they had been going to groups like AIPAC and saying we're working on this problem. And and um, and then. Uh, you know, I sat in an editorial meeting where it was made absolutely clear that APAC criticizing APAC was not on the menu, and uh, it, and 
less specifically criticizing Jewish groups that were advocating for Israel was something that we weren't supposed to do in the pages of of the cat products we were putting out. <laughs> well, he uh, later left this, uh, left Think Progress, um, and I, I certainly would too if I was being censored by anyone at the organization I was working at. Um, but in regard to those leaked emails, I do want to read a quick excerpt from Glenn Greenwald's piece in The Intercept where he wrote, on, on January 20th, 2012, at the height of the controversy over Think Progress's publications on Israel, Tandon wrote an email to the Center for American Progress founder, John Podesta, and several of her top aides, including Think Progress editor Judd Legum. In that email, Tandem recounted an angry call she received from Ann Lewis, who is also a board member of uh, Block's hardline group, The Israel Project. The email reflects the censorship demands being imposed on CAP over Israel and how seriously Tandon was taking those demands. So the problem with Nira Tandon has everything to do with who she is as a person, what her character is, what drives her how easily she's influenced by corporate money, and has absolutely nothing to do, in my opinion, uh, with her tweets, couldn't care less, has nothing to do with the way she looks or what her gender is. But despite all of the facts that I laid out, what we're going to hear over and over again from political pundits and from uh, the corporate elite is that poor Nira Tandon, they just hate her because she's a smart, aggressive, successful woman. Poor Nira Tandon, these Republicans are attacking her because she was mean on Twitter. Aren't they hypocritical? But just understand that when it comes to the left, and I don't speak for everyone on the left, I speak for myself. When it comes to people like me specifically, the problem with Nira Tandon, again, is who she is. It's not what she looks like. And I'm pretty tired of the identity politics being weaponized in order to defend horrible people who have pushed horrible policies in this country. Yeah, man, that was great. Thank you for that. That was very cathartic. I mean, near tended, near tended, <laughs> near tended is like unbelievably stupid. Like that's like the thing. She's like, she's like very stupid. But what, what she is, is she, she's just willing to be, she's just willing to be the, like the human shield. Like she's like a, the front line, uh, the front line of attack, the tip of the spear. She's willing to go to the mattresses for these awful people. Like they'd rather just like stay behind the scenes and just kind of like, uh, you know, eat at their fancy restaurants and, you know, do their thing quietly. Um, she is willing to go out there and just like really stick it to people right in their face, which is why she's being rewarded, right? Like she's being rewarded for right. her service essentially. Um, because like near attended, like doesn't have any original thoughts of her own. Like she's just, she's just, she just doesn't, she doesn't know anything, you know, like that Libya, if you read the Libya email, it's like very clear. She's just like unbelievable, unbelievably stupid. Um, but like, it's at the same time, like she is just like, she has been one of the, probably like maybe her and like, uh, Joanne Reed and like a few others, like are, are the, the, the sort of biggest, um, proponents and the, and the most effective weapons in this idea of using identity politics to basically divide and destroy the left and demoralize the left and kind of, you know, like attack basic economic redistribution all that stuff by using, by weaponizing identity politics. Neera Tandon has been at the forefront of that. She basically has accused Bernie and Bernie Sanders supporters of being sexist, racist, um, misogynist. Right, right. Like that, that she has been, few people in America have been more successful at using that line than Neera Tandon, which is why, you know, her uh, her nomination is just such a blatant slap in the face. I mean, it's, 
again, it's I, I said it on TYT yesterday. I mean, this is what losing looks like, right? It's like they they drink our milkshake, they stick near a tin and right yeah. down our throats, um, you know, because they can yeah. and because they will, and they and they want to humiliate us. I mean, that's just the that's the that's what it means to win and and and, and lose. So, but yeah, it doesn't mean that we can't that we can't make fun of her for being just like just just the absolute worst like just so just so dumb and unhinged um and 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 yeah just one of the worst elements of the ruling class you're right uh we will dunk on her uh we can si se puede um and i'm enjoying <laughs> it uh because you're right you're right but that that's what it takes right i mean someone who is just d- lacks who's intellectually dishonest, let's just keep it real, but is cool with that because that means you move up the ranks of political yeah. power, right? So she she got her payoff. Um, but not yet, though, because we'll see what happens during confirmation hearings. Um, Republicans have said that she's a, you know, non-starter. They're not even considering, um, you know, voting in favor of her. It really depends on the Senate races, runoff races in Georgia. We'll see. But um, if she doesn't make it, We'll we'll be you'll you'll hear it here first, guys. Oh yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah, talk yeah. about it here. <laughs> we'll be watching that story closely. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, speaking of Nira Tandon and um, yes. fun Nira Tandon stories, our guest today um, has his own personal experiences with Nira Tandon. Yes. Joining us now is Corey Robin, professor of political science at uh, CUNY undergraduate uh, center and the author of the Reactionary Mind. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us, Corey. Thanks for having me. So uh, since we're talking about Neera Tandon, uh, why don't we start off with the incredibly strange uh, personal experience that you had with her a few years ago? Oh, God, you're bringing back bad <laughs> memories here. Yeah, I had uh, I, I was watching the uh, clip of her at the DNC meeting in 2016 and Cornell West, who was also shown in the clip that you, you showed just a, a second ago, was talking about uh, Palestine and Neera Tandon rolled her eyes right, uh, right on the clip. And I, um, I tweeted about this, just, you know, comment, it was one tweet. And she responded um, and, and, and said that that wasn't, she accused me of being a liar. She said she had never been uh, there for any discussion (laughs) of Palestine and Israel. And demanded that I retract my statement and said, if you're if you need to do lies, like if you're on the left and you need to do lies, you're doing it wrong or something like that. And, you know, I'm you know, I'm I'm this, you know, nice boy from Westchester. Like when I when I get accused of doing things, I always think I must have done something wrong. So mm-hmm. I, um, I just then spent, I don't know, it felt like the entire day trying to figure out, was that in fact Neera Tandon? Needless to say, after a, a long process, I confirmed that in fact, that was Neera Tandon, that she was there <laughs> in fact for the discussion of Palestine and that she had in fact rolled her eyes. Um, and it, it was, it was, it's only worth talking about. It's not really worth talking about, but it's, it, but just for the sort of amateurishness of it all. Yeah. Um, and which I was really surprised by because, you know, she's an extraordinarily powerful person uh, in the sort of apparatus around the Democratic Party, and that she would a reach out to me um, on Twitter and then lie and be wrong and then not back down, and and it was just emblematic. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also it, it, kind of indicative of what people like Nero Tandon have become, right? What they are. I mean, what you see on social media on a regular basis, like the nonstop gaslighting. And it's like, no, no, you just shouldn't believe right. your lying eyes. You're not right. reading what you're actually reading. You're not yeah, seeing what you're actually through seeing. It. Just tweet through I, it. Never back I, down. That's the lesson I, I, of this and, era. And gaslighting is the right word because it said her face was there and it said there was a, a thing that said Nero Tandon. And I'm sitting there for about three hours thinking, like, maybe in D.C. you shouldn't sit in front of your name tag. That's considered uncool. And, like, the height of power is to have a flunky sit in front of your name. I mean, I'm, I'm like, going through all these contortions in my head. So, a body anyway. double like Saddam, you know? Yeah, like Exactly. That's what I, I thought. I was like, oh, I'm so clueless. But anyway. All right. Well, let's let's get to some of the um, substance because, uh, you know, you've done some incredible work in regard to analyzing the true power that conservatives have in this very moment. Um, you know, if you watch uh, the news and I, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit, if you watch some of the segments I've done in the past, you know, there's a lot of like hyperbolic uh, discourse regarding Donald Trump, the type of power he has, what he's capable of doing. But you've argued that uh, conservatives have far less power today uh, than they have in the past, especially when you take uh, the historical context into mind. So can you elaborate on that argument? Sure. Um, the, uh, conservatism has a long history. Uh, it actually goes back in reaction to the French Revolution. Um, but in the United States, um, it gained traction in the 20th century, really beginning in the 1960s, uh, when it uh, created, began to create a mass movement, uh, a backlash against uh, first the New Deal, uh, then the Great Society, and then finally the various movements for uh, sexual emancipation uh, that were gaining ground in the 1960s and the 1970s. And if you, and this wasn't just a cultural uh, uh, movement, it was very much a political movement that um, utterly transformed the American political order. So many of the things that we now take for granted um, were not taken for granted uh, back then, but it was conservatism that managed to do that. And the culmination, I think, is the long process of three big elections. First, the re-election of Richard Nixon in 1972, then the uh, two, two, two terms of Ronald Reagan and, George, and then finally George W. Bush. And if, if you follow that trajectory, you see that the conservatives were able to um, uh, win popular majorities for the presidency. Um, and, and more important than that, they were, they were able to um, transform, uh, their real achievement was to transform the Democratic Party. Um, Margaret Thatcher was famously asked, what was your biggest achievement? And she said, uh, Tony Blair. And what she meant by that was that a really hegemonic political movement is not only able to put its stamp on its side of the political spectrum, it's able to put its stamp on the opposition so that the opposition has to compete on its terms. And I think likewise, you could say Bill Clinton was probably the great political achievement of uh, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. I mean, think of the end of big government is over. Uh, I'm sorry, the era of big government is over. Um, the, the, the law and order, the anti-welfare, all of that stuff was the, the Nixon-Reagan kind of policies and, and Bill Clinton solidified and consolidated that achievement. And I think once you have that backstory in mind and you start thinking about Donald Trump, I think his presidency looks quite different. 
Uh, first of all, let's just look at the fact that he was elected once, uh, not with a popular majority, but with um, a, a minority of the vote. Uh, he only got into office because of the Electoral College, which was not true of Reagan or Nixon. And unlike George W. Bush, who also only got in the first time because of the Electoral College and the Supreme Court, I should add, um, Trump did not get reelected. And I think that's the first thing to look at. The second thing to look at is that when the Republican, when Trump was elected, we forget this, but he had total control over the elected branches of the federal government. So the Republicans were completely in control. And what did they do with their two years of control? They got tax exactly cuts. what, yeah, one tax cut, one tax, and that was pretty much it. They were not able to repeal Obamacare. They weren't able to actually get an immigration bill through. Um, Trump was not able to get funding for his wall, which he ended up playing Paul Ryan, uh, Paul Ryan for. They were not able to roll back entitlements. There was all, the budgets that they passed under the Republicans were budgets that were more progressive in many ways than those of Barack Obama. And so what I think that tells you is that as a political project, the kind of hegemony that conservatives and Republicans once wanted to achieve, Trumpism was remarkably weak. Um, this is, you know, a one-term presidency. Um, and in addition, uh, you know, and I, I, I join in many of the criticisms of the Democrats um, that, that you guys have on this show. Um, but I think one, one thing that should be pointed out is actually how little the Democrats colluded uh, with the Trump regime. Um, Ronald Reagan got something like 130 Democrats to vote for his tax, tax cuts. George W. Bush got something like 40 to 50 Democrats to vote for his tax cuts. Donald Trump got zero Democrats to vote for his tax cuts. And I don't say this as, you know, a kind of hosanna to the Democratic Party, but just to show you the winnowing hegemony, the diminishing ability that Trump uh, has had uh, to kind of command political space and the political terrain, the way that Republicans and conservatives once did. Um, on public opinion polling, um, in, uh, public opinion polling on immigration is, is more liberal today than it was when Trump took office. On things like Black Lives Matter and criminal justice reform, the same thing. Um, you know, Trump tried to make this reelection about law and order, and it uh, spectacularly failed for him. Um, so I, I think there's a whole bunch of signs that show that the Republicans really do have this diminishing political capacity what props them up and what keeps them in power um, are things like the Electoral College and now post-Trump, it'll be the courts and the Senate. Um, these sort of artifacts of the constitutional order that I think liberals too often hold up as a counter to Trump, but in fact are the, the props that have held Trump up uh, and the GOP up uh, for some time. And I, I want to ask a follow up because, you know, if 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 the right is weak, which it seems like it is, I mean, they lost. Right. That's the like you said, that's the best example of of, of their weakness. Um, the left is also weak. Is it is it like what we always assume, like centrist neoliberals, the center cannot hold? Are they just are they the strongest? Like, who do we got to fight? I guess is my question. Like, who who has the hegemony or is it just kind of like this weird um, transition phase and we don't know what what? who really is, um, has the, has the power right now? It's a really good question that I've been, you know, wrestling with for, for quite a while. I mean, I think the first thing is what I was saying at the end of my, uh, last answer, which is, 
it's the institutions, ironically, that are strong. Um, the, 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 I hesitate to say that a political project like either neoliberalism or the right or anything is particularly strong, but because so much of it depends upon things like the courts, which are counter-majoritarian, anti-democratic institutions. Likewise, the Senate. The Senate doesn't represent, the majority of senators don't represent the majority of the country by any stretch. Um, so that's, those are the institute, those, it's those institutions that, you know, again, the sort of liberal resistance types always worry about. Those are the things that are very strong. If there's an ideology uh, behind it, I would say it's some kind of centrist neoliberalism. I mean, I, I think we are in this, extended interregnum where my big fear is we're just going to go back and forth between a kind of uh, centrist neoliberal multicultural party which is the democrats and a sort of neoliberal white nationalist party which is the republicans and you know that's the back and forth and you know the promise of sanders and the sanders left was to try to break out of that that stasis um and you know We've made some progress, uh, not nearly as much as many of us would have liked to have seen. Um, but, you know, American institutions are remarkably intransigent. They are very difficult to overcome and they are the, the mediums through which you have to have these battles. Um, and so I, my best guess is that we are in this, in, like I said, this extended interregnum. Um, but I think it's, pretty unstable. I don't think that it can hold um, that long. It has remarkably little legitimacy. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the thing I always come back to in my darker moments is, you know, if you had asked, uh, you know, a French person in 1786 or 1787, you know, what's the status of the Ancien Regime, they would have said, you know, it's, it's doing great. And <laughs> regimes that are sclerotic and vulnerable always seem to be much more impregnable um, and invulnerable than they in fact are. And it is the job of the left, not simply to point out these systemic problems, but also to point out the points of vulnerability. And I think that's what the left has to start doing more of is to figuring out where are the chinks in the armor um, that we can you know, make more progress on. And I, I just don't think we know right now. Yeah, yeah, I think that's such a great point. And, you know, you talk about how uh, conservatives, at least in the United States, are are at a weak point, mostly because they don't really have popular support, right? So they do rely on uh, the Electoral College, you know, gerrymandering, um, and the courts in order to uh, get reelected, to get elected. And so I, I kind of want to look forward into the future and and ask what your thoughts are in regard to you know, the hundreds of judges, uh, federal judges that Donald Trump was able to successfully confirm, um, including three Supreme Court judges. Um, do you see, because in reality, I mean, conservatives might be weak in terms of popular support, uh, yeah. but if they uh, essentially uh, mess with the system to their advantage, it doesn't matter if they're popular or not. They can use yeah. the system to their advantage. So can you talk about what you see happening in the future? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, I should say that in 2017, I, I remember it was like March or April. Um, so this is a, just a couple of months. We're still into the first hundred days of Trump. And I was spending a lot of time pointing out all the things that were not happening. You know, many on the left were very uh, frightened um, for understandable reasons because Trump's rhetoric was so menacing. 
Um, and I felt like it was really important to point out, look at what he's not able to do. Look at all the ways in which he's being checked. And I kept going over that over and over again. And then I started to notice one area where it was very clear that Trump and the Republicans were actually being quite ruthless and, 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 and more competent um, than people give them credit for. And that was on appointing judges. And so it became very clear early on that the Republicans understood full well that regardless of the political fortunes and fate of Trump and, and, and elected officials on the right, um, they saw uh, the packing of the courts as, as, as the key, the keystone of their future. And I, I just want to point out an irony about this, though, because a lot of the resistance rhetoric against Trump that you hear from, from centrists and liberals is that, you know, he is anti-judiciary and that, they, you know, he's assaulting the courts and that the courts are, you know, supposed to protect the courts and the Constitution are supposed to protect us. And what I said at the time, and I think has become even clearer now, is, is that the, the, the irony is, is that Trump's greatest caretaker and custodian after he is gone is going to be the courts. Um, now, we have been there before in American history, um, uh, going into, you know, uh, during the Gilded Age, um, the left, uh, you know, from 1870s, 1880s to the 1930s, the left was one of the most formidable opponents of the courts, um, primarily because the courts were the vanguard of ruling against and uh, against the labor movement and against socialists, but really against the labor movement. It was called rule by injunction. So one of the big projects of the left was how to beat back the power of the courts, which they tried to do over and over and over again. So much so that by the time you get to the New Deal, when the court is striking down, uh, you know, legislation after legislation after legislation in the early 1930s, there, there was a, a, a cartoon that they were called the these four uh, justices. They were called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse um, because they were constantly striking down New Deal legislation. And I I suspect this is where we are heading um, right now. Um, and 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 it's it, it's a hard to know how that's going to shake out. All I will say is if that, if, if that is where we are heading, that means we are reverting to what was for many decades of American history, the norm uh, of, 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 of the American political order, namely not viewing the courts as the friend of the left, but as the intransigent defender of the old regime, of the old order. Um, and that's going to be a difficult language for the left to um, uh, embrace because, you know, for people of my generation, we came of age with the halo around the court, the Warren court, the defender of African-Americans, the defender of sexual minorities, um, the defender of dissenters and so forth. But that really has not been the norm of American uh, history. I will say one other thing on the courts, however, which one, it surprised me, frankly, um, right now, we're seeing this with this election that, you know, uh, Trump's uh, uh, efforts are being struck down repeatedly by um, federal judges and state level judges. But some of these federal judges are Trump appointees, um, which has been kind of interesting. Nobody's really talked about this because um, it doesn't fit with, you know, the discourse. Uh, but it has actually been true. Like there's been a particular one of the federal appointees in, that, who covers the Pennsylvania circuit has been pretty aggressively striking down uh, stuff. And this is this was actually going on throughout the summer and into the fall because there were a lot of there was a lot of litigation. I don't want to claim that, you know, Trump's people 
that he appoints are somehow going to really go against the conservative order. I don't think that's true. I just think it's probably going to be a little bit more nuanced and complicated than people on the left um, realize. Well, uh, piggybacking on that, I'm, I'm curious what you think, um, because we've talked about it on this show about what comes next for the American right, you know, post Trump. I mean, or I mean, or certainly in a, in a world in which Trump is still around, but he's not the president. I mean, that, that's that's another question. I mean, it seems like Trump has really um, in, in a certain like even though he's weak in the sort of grand scheme of things or has been weak in the grand scheme of things, he has kind of sort of. I don't, I don't want. I don't want to use the word radicalize, like a a, a, a small a, a small chunk or a, a decent chunk of of the Republican voting base, and and that seems kind of that seems to me like there's no going back to yeah. the old the old way. Um, what do you think is 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 next for the American right in the sort of post Trump presidency era? Yeah, I I don't know is is the honest answer. Um, I often look to the 1970s as a kind of helpful precedent analogy, um, but from the opposite side of the spectrum, namely the left. If you were looking at what's going on on the left in the 1970s, you also saw, uh, you know, both a kind of a fair amount of disaffiliation from the left that was happening. You had people defecting, um, you know, eventually became the, you know, the Reagan Democrats. Um, defecting to the Republican Party and the right, people defecting from the political um, universe altogether, which is actually not happening today, the opposite. But you see these defections in the opposite direction. And then you also had a radicalization on the left. Um, there was all kinds of experiments in, in political adventurism and political violence. Um, but, you know, if you step back, you realize that this was the kind of the, the, the um, dying embers uh, of a fire that was going out. I don't know if that's the case right now, because we also have this, you know, political economy that is falling apart. Um, and, you know, that um, also tends to, you know, particularly for, you know, two thirds of the people who are not at the top. Uh, and that just, you know, is never very promising unless you have real political organization um, on the ground. And so it's, I, I think it's, it, it's a very difficult um, to see what's going to happen. And I, 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 would, I would probably be foolish to try to predict um, where the right is going to go. One thing I will say is, is that I'm skeptical of some people who say that what we're going to see is like a Trump 2.0, a kind of more effective, uh, yeah. competent, slicker version of Trump. And for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, first, I don't think that the, 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 the inability of the Trump regime to deliver when they had total power over the elected branches of the government can be chalked up to Trump's incompetence. You know, Mitch McConnell was right there at the center of things. And you can accuse Mitch McConnell of many things, but incompetence is not one of them. Um, so I think it's more systemic than that. Um, and then likewise, I think that, um, you know, one of Trump's appeals in a way to, 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 to his base was precisely that he was such a mess, um, that he was such a, you know, kind of political, yeah. the slovenliness of it all. Um, and I, cause I think that goes to the kind of the, the performance art that the right is currently engaged in. So Definitely. whether, you know, whether, uh, you know, and then, and then you, you know, people say you know, Tom Cotton, you know, these, these people who have the charisma of a doorknob, um, yeah. you know, the idea that they're going to somehow, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, rally. I, 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 it's, it's just, it's, it, 
again, and I, you know, I, I hate, I, I don't want to get into predictions because none of us knows, but there is a way in which the left sometimes is the secret, the, the greatest secret fans of the right and think that they've got this kind of political magic on their side, um, which I just think is not true. And all the signs are that the magic and the, the romance is fading. Um, but what is left there, I, that I just, I, I can't, I can't say. So let's talk a little bit about uh, this ongoing discussion, debate uh, regarding Trump attempting uh, what some believe is a political coup, right? So you've been pretty yeah. uh, critical of people who genuinely believe that Trump is trying to stage some sort of political coup. Um, but one thing that has stood out to me is how few Republicans are willing to go on the record and acknowledge the fact uh, that Joe Biden did, in fact, win the election. Of course, Donald Trump has still refused to concede. Um, and so the Washington Post actually reached out to every single congressional Republican, and they found out that only 25 out of uh, 249 congressional Republicans acknowledged Biden's win. Does that concern you in any way? Um, yes and no. I mean, it doesn't in the way that I think it concerns a lot of other people that somehow this is a party that is, you know, shaping up to be a fascist authoritarian party. Um, because the flip side of that refusal that you're describing is a corresponding refusal that almost nobody has noted, uh, which is that when it comes to the actual Republican Party officials who are in a position to do something, to implement the Trump agenda on this election, namely not to certify elections, not to certify specific county canvassing board votes, all that kind of stuff. Anybody who has been, there has been remarkably few cases actually of those Republican party officials being willing to do that. And so what you have, if you look, step back and look at both sides of this picture, you have on the one side, Trump's rhetoric. There's three sides to this actually, you have Trump, speaking, right? So you have him saying his thing. Then two, you have Republican um, politicians, um, not really backing him up, but not really, but not really also willing to uh, defend him for the most part, with some exceptions, right? So they're kind of silent. And then you have Republican Party officials who are in a position to do something consistently ruling against him. Um, and so to me, again, this just points to this kind of uncertainty of the Republican Party that they just, they, they don't really know, it's certainly not a coup. The idea that it's a coup is 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 preposterous um, because you don't have any kind of concerted action or concerted will to do anything. What you have is, I think, just is, is this kind of vacuum of leadership within the Republican Party. Clearly, there's an awful lot of them who are simply, um, you know, just waiting to see how this all shakes out and just wait. They basically just want history to kind of move itself along and then they'll kind of get on. They'll get on with it. Um, so I'm not concerned in the sense that most people are concerned. What I am concerned about is, is again, this, this sense that you have um, this sort of a party that's really uncertain about what it's actually doing. Uh, and I think that makes it very hard um, for, you know, for the rest of us to kind of figure out then what, 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 what is our plan uh, in response. But I think that's more the reality that I see is Republican Party officials at the state level moving along the process with, you know, with, I think the exception of, I, I think I've counted five cases at the very most out of hundreds and hundreds of officials. Um, most of them are just passing it along. And then Trump 
doing his tweet thing. And then you have the rest of the Republican Party just kind of waiting for this to shake out, however it may. I want to ask you about another kind of debate du jour on on the left, which is this um, the the left's relationship with the Democratic Party. Um, I think that you know after in a segment on your attendant and seeing all the cabinet positions that have been nominated, like this idea of pushing Biden left after the election or whatever was 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 just not going to happen. Um, you know, I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are in terms of like what the left's relationship to the Democratic Party should be. Um, because because I, I, that's something that I grapple with all the time, and you know, people say like, "Oh, well, we got to go third party," and that, that seems that seems like a, a foolhardy errand uh, to me. But also, like, I look at the Democratic Party, and, I, and I'm just seeing this, and maybe I'm maybe I'm overrating their strength, but I'm just seeing this kind of remarkably durable uh, institution, like you said, that is just much harder to much harder to um, destroy than than yeah. we had previously thought. Yeah, I mean, I think Matt Carp had a really great piece in Jacobin about a month or two ago where he, you know, it was a really uh, uh, sobering piece for the left because he said, you know, precisely this, the Democratic Party has a couple of key constituencies here um, that are really going to be difficult for the the left to crack. Um, And I mean, the other thing I would add to his piece of the puzzle is the fact that we don't have a really independent, uh, powerful labor movement, um, I think is, is a real problem. Um, I don't have an answer to that. I, you know, I just, um, I mean, this is going to sound terrible. Uh, you know, Obama, Obama had this idiotic plaque on his desk that, you know, the centrist always loved uh, to quote, hard things are hard. Um, right. And he did, David Axelrod gave it to him. And, and the myth around that plaque, and then I'll explain why I'm bringing it up in a second, um, is, you know, everybody said he, you know, used this to explain, like, you know, the heroic effort to get the ACA, you know, the Obamacare passed. In fact, and this speaks to your earlier, one of your earlier segments, um, it, it, it was actually because they were thinking about going after entitlements. Um, and, you know, hard things are hard. Taking on your left flank is a hard thing to do. <laughs> but, the, but the truth is, hard things are hard. And, um, you know, I, I, I think we can see some progress um, at state level parties uh, with, you know, with, with the left uh, really being able to take on some of the stuff with Democrats. Um, and, I, and I hate I say that very begrudgingly because ever since I was politically aware the left has been like, let's go local, let's not go national, let's, you know, do the state level stuff. And, and, and you know, every two years, the left rediscovers this idea as, as, as if it's a novel thing, as opposed to making the best of a bad situation. But the truth is, that is where we have seen some progress. Um, and building organizational capacity is something that there's just no shortcuts around. Um, you know, I came to the left out of the labor movement. And, you know, that is the long slog. Um, and I, I just I don't see any other way except that um, uh, I will say, however, that, you know, we get these periodic bursts of social movements. Um, uh, and the one that was the most promising to me, uh, I would say, um, uh, was the uh, the teacher strikes um, mm. because, precisely because they were happening in red states. Um, and it just shows that there are political possibilities that are out there um, to uh, reverse the political valence um, and really actually get stuff uh, done um, that uh, no, that very few of us would have anticipated. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think the combination of both state level and kind of these social movement things are, are, are uh, what we have because while you know something like the Black Lives Matter protests that exploded over the summer, I think they show you two things. You know, one is how vulnerable these institutions are in the moment, uh, and then how quickly they uh, recalibrate and recuperate. And turning mm. those explosive moments into an extended movement um, is really the task of the day. And I just, you know, I don't think any of us really knows how that happens except that it has happened in the past and it has to happen now. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I really got to ask one more question because I've been, I've been very curious to, to hear what you, what you think about it. But I, I, I want to ask about um, this phenomenon that we've seen lately of kind of Tucker Carlson-ish right-wing populism and, and, and this call from certain people on the left that in order to build a base, you need to find some sort of common ground yeah. with right populists Um um, like someone like Tucker Carlson or the people who kind of who who enjoy his show. Um, what do you make of that kind of realignment, the sort of, you know, the the, the hills rising realignment kind of thing? Um, what, what do you make of that? Are you like you think there's possibilities there or are you skeptical of it? I mean, the first thing I should say is none of this is new. Um, you know, I, I uh, it, it, this, there's a long history of this kind of right po economic populist. Uh, you know, you go back to George Wallace in the 1970s. Go back, Richard Nixon um, uh, had some similar kind of economic populist um, uh, uh, cross messaging. Um, so there's none of it that's, you know, Pat Buchanan in the 1990s. That was all that he was about. Um, I think I'm ultimately a little bit skeptical of the ability to reach out to, to, to I mean, uh, I, I, I mean, I think, the, well, let me say two things. One is the left should talk to everybody. I, I don't buy this, you know, kind of mm. siloing of things that you yeah. shouldn't be talking to different audiences. I just think that's bullshit. Um, and I think <laughs> you should, you know, get, get an audience where you can. People move in all kinds of ways that are very difficult to understand and the left has very little understanding of. So I, I just think you, you, know, you have to do that. I am skeptical, however, uh, uh, that, that somehow or another, those are the voters um, that you wanna be reaching out to. Because um, I tend to think that um, unless they're very young, um, you know, everything we know about um, uh, about people's political identities and ideological identities is that, you know, they tend to get settled sometime, you know, between their late teens and their, you know, late 20s. Uh, and after that, it, it's rare that you find the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of changes that we're talking about. Um, and I think most of, from what I understand, you know, most of the audiences for these shows tend to be much, much older. Um, I, I, so I, I, I just don't think that's really where uh, the growth is. I'll, I'll also add that when people, you know, talk about Carlson or Hawley or these kinds of figures, like thinking that's the future of the Republican Party, I also think that's total bullshit um, because the Republican Party is the Republican Party, you know, um, and Donald Trump, you know, certainly made some hay talking like that. Um, but the only reason I mean, this is the reason why the Republican Party never turned on him. Um, was because he dropped all that kind of rhetoric. And anybody who actually tried to really implement that kind of rhetoric um, would um, find themselves the way Jimmy Carter found himself in the 1970s, because Jimmy Carter, ironically, was a far more powerful president than Donald Trump, because he actually really imposed his vision, neoliberal vision, on the Democratic Party. 
And that's why they ultimately, you know, turned on him. Um, uh, and if, if anything like that were to happen on the comparable side for Trump on the, on the Republican Party side, um, they'd turn on him, too. All right. Corey Robin, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. We really appreciate the discussion and we hope you'll come back again soon. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Good chatting with you guys. Thank you. All right. Love Corey. Everything comes back to the 1970s. Everything today, like you got to look, you got to understand the 1970s to understand American politics. That's like clear to me as ever. Yeah, I mean, I, I I really enjoy his work because it's so easy to get caught in the hyperbolic discourse that takes place on a daily basis. But like to, yeah. to really take a step back and analyze things rationally, I think is important. You know, he had a he had a quote from a recent interview he did with uh, Jewish Currents, and he says, "In the coming years, once the emotional context of Trump's presidency fades away, I think more and more people will see yeah. just how weak he really was." And yeah. I, lo- I love that statement. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth behind it. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, if you are watching live, highly recommend that you send us your super chat questions. Uh, yes. We'll answer a few of them uh, toward the end of the show after we finish our salt segment. Um, but while we wait for you guys to send in your questions, why don't we do um, some salt? Why don't, we, why don't we sprinkle some salt on Nancy Let's Pelosi it, today? Yeah. All right. So. After rejecting a $1.8 trillion stimulus proposal from Donald Trump prior to the general election taking place, Nancy Pelosi is now urging Congress to vote in favor of a $900 billion stimulus proposal by, uh, you know, in in a bipartisan effort. Uh, This was uh, proposed by the so-called Problem Solvers Caucus. In reality, (laughs) it's uh, dog shit, uh, to to put it lightly. (laughs) And uh, what it does is it essentially provides uh, liability uh, protections for corporations if their employees get sick from coronavirus, if they die from coronavirus. It does not offer uh, the $1,200 checks uh, that Americans were receiving uh, through the CARES Act. It's just an incredibly watered-down, nonsense proposal. And it's amazing that Pelosi has gone from, no, I'm not going to take a $1.8 trillion proposal. By the way, Democrats were willing to go down to $2 trillion from what they had proposed earlier, which was $4 trillion. Um, But now that the election is over and she has uh, essentially no leverage, um, she's saying that uh, congressional lawmakers should vote in favor of this watered-down proposal. So Jeff Stein from the Washington Post tweeted this, and I think it's telling, asked why she's on board with an apparently smaller, not apparently, it is a smaller coronavirus bill, (laughs) Jeff Stein, okay? Uh, Smaller coronavirus package. Speaker Pelosi cites the game changer of vaccine development and Biden's election. And then he quotes her saying, that's okay now because we have a new president, a president who recognizes we need uh, to depend on science. She also said uh, in regard to refusing to accept the $1.8 trillion proposal by Trump, that was not a mistake. That was a decision that has taken us to a place where we can do the right things with without, should we say, other considerations in the mm-hmm. legislation that we don't want. I'm very proud of where we are. But, okay, so be specific, because I stupidly was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt in regard to uh, <laughs> what Republicans and Trump 
we're, we're proposing through that $1.8 trillion uh, bill because it did include that liability protection for corporations. And I think that's unacceptable, right? Um, because we've seen what these companies have done in refusing to protect their employees. I mean, just read the details of what the Tyson meatpacking plant did. They were packing these employees in, 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 you know, close proximity to one another, refusing to give them, um, you know, protective gear. Uh, management was upstairs taking bets on how many of their employees would get sick and potentially die. I mean, horrendous stuff. But I'm, just, I'm an idiot, right? Even at this point, I'm naive enough to think that Nancy Pelosi has, I guess, some moral, you know, uh, compass, uh, some worry about employment. She's not worried about any of that. It was purely political. She didn't want to give Trump a win prior to the election. That's it. Um, I'm rambling and we have a Pelosi nah. video, but I want you to jump in before we go to that Pelosi video. Uh, Nando. You're, you're hundred percent right. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just, it's, it's, they also, they also, they gave away their leverage, right? They gave away their leverage in the original cares package. Um, they gave Mitch McConnell everything he wanted, which was just, you know, trillions of dollars for corporations. That was the biggest thing he needed to, to make investors whole. I mean, it's why you know, the stock market's doing so well. I think it just hit like a record high in the S and P 500 or in, you know, which is so strange in the middle of like a, a, a stopped economy, essentially. Um, and it's uh, and, and so they gave away all their leverage in the CARES in the CARES Act. You know, once it was over in August, like once the, the sort of expanded unemployment insurance ran out, once the twelve hundred dollar checks ran out, um, once the, like the rent moratoriums and all that stuff, uh, the uh, sorry, the foreclosure moratoriums are going to run out in December. Like they don't have any reason. McConnell has no reason. I mean, he would like the five year the five year. Uh, uh, exemption from liability for coronavirus for corporations. He'd like that, but he got most, he got like 98% of what he wanted. That That's just like the little extra 2% on the top. Um, so yeah, there's no, uh, there's just no leverage. And then the, so the, the only sort of small glimmer of leverage they had is when there was a desperate Trump um, trying to win reelection. And yeah. um, you know, it, it is true. Had he passed the $1.8 trillion stimulus package, you know, a month or two before the election, it probably would have helped them a couple points. You know, that's 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 undeniably true. But it is also true that people are suffering and like majorly. And it, it I don't know, I, I still believe that they probably should have taken the deal and taken their chances on the election. Um, I mean, it, they didn't do great anyway. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. but I, I think that they, they 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 probably should have taken that deal because now they the the the, the incentive for Republicans is completely the opposite. I mean, this right. this bipartisan problem solvers caucus did not include Mitch McConnell. Like that's the that's the key thing to understand is like and unless Mitch McConnell like brings this thing, Mitch to McConnell's vote, against it. Mitch McConnell's like uh, I'm not going to sign it. on to anything no. above five hundred billion dollars. That's it. And this, and even you know, even even if they did come up with some sort of new five hundred dollar billion dollar thing, like I could see him just moving the goalposts yet again because he has totally. zero incentive to do this. You know, why would he give Biden even the a modicum of a win? Uh, ahead, like just just to start off his presidency, like he 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 won't. Um, so uh, so there, that, that's what I'm saying. Like I'm, I'm skeptical of even this paltry little thing will will come to pass because because there's no leverage. There's no reason why he would pass it. Yeah. So um, we also have video of Nancy Pelosi being asked about this, and she's she's gotten super like snippy with anyone who asks her, even like the like the smallest question that might be a little bit challenging, right? Like this, just anyway, I'm watch, watch how she handles this question. It's pathetic. I want to tell you something. Don't, don't characterize what we did before as a mistake, as a preface. 
to your question if you want an answer. That was not a mistake. It was a decision, and it has taken us to a place where we can do the right thing without other, shall we say, considerations in the legislation that we don't want. So we're very pleased at where it is. And as I say, with a Democratic president committed to a scientific solution for this. What does that even mean? With the idea that we will have a vaccine, it's a complete game changer from them. Average Americans are not going to have access to this vaccine until, if they're lucky, the spring, like mid-spring, maybe even early summer. Okay, Market Watch put out a story this morning about how Wall Street is likely yeah, to yeah. have access to the vaccine before our healthcare workers. Let's go, baby. Before our Let's healthcare go. workers. The money's got to move, baby. The money's got to move. Zipping around. The stock's got to go up and down. The Bloomberg terminal's got to be fired up. Hell yeah. Ugh, it's, it's so just, uh, Oh, my. It's a. But now there are other considerations. Like, what, what are you talking about? You. You messed up. She knows it, but she doesn't care. She doesn't care. It was all purely political for her. In her head, she didn't make a mistake because jeopardizing the outcome of the general election is what the priority was. The priority was not to look out for Americans who have been laid off. It was not to look out for Americans who are facing eviction. She's never cared about that. If she did care about that, if she actually understood the political moment, she wouldn't be stupid enough to put out a video posing in front of her $2,400 refrigerator. No, no I'm sorry, $24,000. $24,000 yeah, yeah. refrigerators. Each one's $12,000. Yeah, yeah. She put that video out in the beginning of the pandemic as, hun- yeah. as tens of millions of Americans are losing their jobs. Licking that she ice She does cream. not care. Does no. not care. Uh, you, know, she, you know, she's kind of like, there's there's similarities between Nancy Pelosi and Neera Tainan in the sense that um, they're like, you know, the left hates them and the right hates them so much, you know, like no, that, they, that there is no benefit, like they don't get points from the right for like punching left all the time. Like the right hates them just as much. Like Nancy Pelosi is a bigger drag on a uh, congressional, uh, election, you know, on some random person than the slogan defund the police, you know, like Nancy Pelosi is like, is like, they see her as like this, like. Far left San Francisco communist. It's on insane. The right. It's insane. It's, it's, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. It's so crazy. So. It's so crazy. So, like, yeah, w- whenever the left is attacking Pelosi, they automatically um, draw these false equivalencies between the right and the left, right? Like the whole ho- yeah. horseshoe theory that makes me want to pull my hair out. No, the GOP has a vested interest in painting Democratic leadership, regardless of how neoliberal they are, as a threat to to our economy, to capitalism, to all of that. We disagree. We hate on her for something completely different because she's actually the enemy of equality in this country, economic equality. She's the enemy. Like when we were talking to um, Corey Robin. I think one of the questions you asked, you know, somewhere in the question you said, like, who should we be fighting right now? And the and the answer is the Democratic Party. They're our number totally. one enemy. That's what I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're yeah. they're the pre they're the step one. You know, they're step one to, um, you know, we got to get through them before we can do anything else. It's that's 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 a hundred percent true. Um, and yeah, it's yeah. Anyway, all right. Well. Let's Beautiful bring Kale boy, in. Kale. People, 
The people want kale. What can I? The people love our beautiful, our beautiful boy. They love him. They love him. He's from Argentina, folks. Folks, he speaks Spanish. He's he's Latinx. Isn't it beautiful? He's Latinx, but you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell. You couldn't even tell. I feel like only Nando. Nando's the only one who's figured it out. Uh, Yeah. I wonder if there's a reason for that. I can smell. I can smell Latinx. (laughs) I can smell it it from here. I can smell the chimichurri and the asado from here. Mm. (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds really good. Sounds like my future tonight. Um, yeah. No, we want more Anna raging on Nancy Pelosi. Like, as a regular oh, yeah. segment, I People think. love that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really dislike her. Um, <laughs> I dislike her because she's she is... She's enemy number one, politically speaking, obviously. Like, she she's incredibly powerful in ways that I think that, um, you know, at least some portion of the left underestimates, right? And I think it's an under I think they underestimate her because most of what they do against her is on social media. And that's nothing. She has all the resources. She has all this power. She has this um, like this whole system set up to defend what she stands for. Right. And she's also look, we when we talk about the Democrats being weak, they're not actually weak. They have a vested interest not to fight. Like, it's on purpose. They don't want, um, you know, they don't want Medicare for all. We know that. They don't want these programs that are actually incredibly popular with Democratic voters. What they want is to do right by their corporate donors. And they do over and over again. I know they're not weak because I've seen how they fight the left. And I've seen the kind of dirty tricks they engage in. I've seen the kind of dirty tricks they've engaged in when it comes to, um, you know, progressive challengers to crap corporate Democrat incumbents. We know yeah. they're strong when they want to be. So uh, the reason why I, I, I talk about her so much is because she's the she's the threat. And the fact that yeah. she was able to um, get reelected as Speaker of the House so easily with no challenge at all. It's yeah. just it, it gives you a sense of how much power she has within the Democratic Party. It's pathetic. Yeah. Right. I mean, she's she's the one she has to and she does, unfortunately, a fairly decent job of this, of making the case that, you know, while in reality, she is there to defend Silicon Valley and corporations and American capitalism broadly, uh, that she is the leader of the multiracial working class party in America. And I mean, I think like the the enemy for socialists is is capital. But then like knowing that Pelosi, McConnell, knowing that like these are the people that uh, are their their faces, capitals, political faces, um, you know, they're not literally capital, but like honestly, like in and it, well, Pelosi, like, Pelosi at this stage of the game has got a lot of capital inside of her. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the American state is pretty much entirely captured by the capitalist class. Like it's it's not even like because there's whole like, you know, what are the mechanisms mechanisms by which the the state is uh, is has a bias towards capital and like there's the people there's the institutions and there's just the structural necessities but they check every single box like that these are the people that like are friends with some of the most despicable uh, and like both like friends with like the most despicable like uh, corporate uh, owners and CEOs and um, they. Most, I mean, I don't, I mean, this is probably open secrets somewhere that like, 
you know, besides just getting donations from these companies, like they probably all of their stock portfolios are probably in the yeah, same way that we were talking point. earlier with with such Amazon. a great point. Like, thank you for bringing that up. Is dependent on on corporations. So, yeah, like yeah. the fact that we it's don't crazy. have regulations, per, like preventing that very real stocks. conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. It's insane. It's crazy. You're lawmakers. You're supposed to regulate yeah. industry, but you're you have a vested interest in not regulating them. There's a giant yeah. conflict of interest for all the talk that we heard about Trump's violations of the emoluments clause. I mean, come on. Yeah, those violations exist. I, you know, I've criticized. Uh, that situation as well. But let's take a good hard look at how corruption and conflicts of interest is like baked into our system. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I love that you brought that up. Thanks, Kale. Of course. That's why I'm here. Just for those one-liners. At the and end. it's the only way, <laughs> it's really the only way to make money in this country at this point. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to work and you're going to put your savings, you're going to put your money in the savings account, right? Where it depreciates in value with inflation in mind. Like, really? No, it, it Everything in this country is markets, market. You got to invest, invest, invest. And once you're invested, it makes it incredibly difficult to persuade people who have such a giant stake in that game to, to divest and to do the right thing. They're not going to do the right thing. Literally, their bottom line and their personal finances relies on it. Right. And that's Kale, the, you got her going, dude. You got her going again. This is, yeah. this is what the people want. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just doing my job as producer. So, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I hope you guys enjoyed. So, of course, uh, we do have. I, I had some other points, but whatever. I, we do have super chat questions. We should get to those. Let's do it before Let's the end of the hour. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, someone asks uh, if if Professor Robin is right that it's rare to change people's pol- politics past their teens and early twenties. What can we do to deal with several decades of magas or just you know this more kind of rabid? hyper-reactionary kind of conservatism yeah. that we're seeing right now. So I guess it's, we, they want your thoughts on uh, some response to what Robin was saying earlier. Corey. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same kind of, it's the same answer always, which is not saying it's, it's an, it's, it's an easy, but you have to go after the, the non-political people, the non-voters, the people who aren't watching that carefully. Um, obviously there are, there are in a way they they have some very deeply ingrained political, um, ideas, even though they, they might not express it, but basically it's just cynicism about about politics more broadly. And to sort of get past that cynicism, um, it's very difficult. Like they correctly understand, and they say it all the time. They're like, "Oh, they're all just they're all just corrupt, and they're all just out there to you know to screw me over." And it's like that that cynicism is very hard to overcome. But it's it's probably easier to overcome that, especially if you can point to some concrete victory um, here and there. Which is it's and it's a chicken and egg argument. You need voting base to get concrete victories, but you need concrete victories to get a voting base. But um, it's probably easier to convince someone like that than someone who's just like mainlining uh, Fox News and like uh, Ben Shapiro's Facebook posts uh, every single day. Like that just seems to me like a fool's errand. Uh, You know, I just there's how are you going to convince someone? How you can how do you even like find a way to like argue with someone like that? Um, So In answering that question, I really like the perspective provided by Richard Wolf, honestly, um, because think about how irrational you are, right? Everyone, myself included, how irrational we get when we're angry or frustrated or we feel ignored or neglected. And so it, it, I, 
I just feel like the rage that people are feeling overall right now, the economic frustrations that people are feeling, like that rage ends up manifesting in ways that I, I think is indicative of like Trump supporters. You know, I'm not saying they're all, you know, fueled by that. But I, I just think that if people are happy, if people are doing well, if they're able to like provide for themselves and their families and they have happy lives, they're not going to express this like overwhelming rage that we're seeing in the country. And I think what Trump did is just tap into that. He tapped into that. And then he also immediately pivoted to all the disgusting, you know, race related um, hatred that he put out there. So I just think, you know, I do think people can be persuaded. You just need to get to a place where people are thinking rationally. And it's hard to do that when you're furious at, at the system. You're furious at feeling left behind. Um, you know, I, that's just my take. I could be wrong, but definitely listen to Richard Wolf's thoughts on this because I think he has really good insight. Right. Well, this is also where it's important for socialists and leftists and progressives to to have a, a solid class analysis, because you understand what people's material interests are. And then you understand that a lot of what we're talking about of Medicare for all, of jobs guarantees, of economic redistribution, all of these things, these are political strategies to try to deal with people's material interests. And when people reject them, when they have the material interests that align with Medicare for all, for instance, um, and someone says, like a working class person says, I don't need Medicare for all, I don't want Medicare for all, or it sounds bad, or some, so there's some kind of rationalizing that they do to try to say, like, this is, this is actually a bad thing. It's not because they don't need health care. It's not because they're rejecting their material interests. It's because the political strategy that the left's putting forward is not understood as viable to them yet. Right. And so yeah. this is this the is cynicism. It's, but it's, it's, I mean, it's, but it's also the rate, it's a cynicism. It's the rage that Anna's talking about. It's like people are, when you, when you're in such a bad situation, like, and you haven't ever really seen a win, you know, in 40, 50 years for working people, it all sounds like pie in the sky. And it's, it's all, you know, so that's where like Bernie for the first time in, in a, you know, half a century basically said, no, actually we can get these things. We can win these things. We, you know, but it takes us fighting for them. And most people agree with you that it's actually a good thing to want these things. And so it's, there's, you know, part of it is both like making the case of saying like, no, actually like you'll benefit from this. And, uh, but it's, it, there's a fight involved in order to win it. But then the other side is like seeing is believing. And so like we need, uh, you know, if people see a strike, like or if people see like uh, a, an electoral victory or people see a legislative victory, like these this has an, a really important effect on people's ability to believe in or not their ability, but their their willingness to uh, to believe that uh, that change, the real left change is possible. The working class change is possible. So. I think, I mean, it's, it's a multitude of factors. Um, and I, there's another question that I want to throw in that's related to this, unless you, you guys want to say something more. No, no, no. Another question, baby. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, McMindfulness, one of our very regular viewers, uh, is quoting, uh, Matt Chrisman as saying that the online left is separate from the lives of most working people. Is there in, I don't know if this is the right 
is there an infection point at which material conditions bring us closer together? If so, how bad will material conditions have to get for this to happen? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's like a, I don't think there's like a definite answer to that. It's like, oh, well, if, you know, wage, if wages go below, dip below this number, um, it's going to, it's going to create the inflection point or whatever. If this many people kind of, um, uh, fall below the poverty line, this, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's an exact number. I mean, it, you would hope that it, that it could, that it, that's going to come that, that, that at some point, you know, if things are so bad that there is going to be sort of a new class consciousness emerge, um, that I think he's right doesn't exist right now, and there is very much. Uh, it is very much true that there is a disconnect um, between uh, the online left and the vast majority of working people in this country. I mean, that's just that's just look at the numbers. I mean, it's that's just the reality of it. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think we're trying to do it on things like this show. We're trying. I mean, we're trying. You know, we're trying to connect it. Um, but it's it's not easy, and and it's not certainly not easy when um, when we're all obviously at home. But I'll but but beyond that, just kind of the the nature of the modern economy um, yep. makes it so that we're all siloed. You know, yep. we're all on our computer all day, um, and yeah, it's just it just makes it much much more difficult. I've been thinking about that a lot actually, because you know. Pandemic aside, let's say we're back to quote unquote normal and we're all going into work or whatever. Um, you know, like, I don't know. I'm guessing because I feel this personally, like our workloads have gotten so unbelievably unmanageable that like the the idea of even like just being able to spend a decent amount of time with your own family is like pie in the sky at this point. Right. So Whenever you have a little bit of time, it's like desperately trying to get out of work and spend time with people in your personal lives. There, you know, your your segment, Nando, on the situation with Amazon, like the video showing how how quickly they need to work, how they're not allowed to talk to each other, how they're all in like their own separate aisles and all like that. I don't think that's an accident. That's on purpose. No. Like that, yeah. that serves as an obstacle to really connecting with your fellow workers and, and organizing with them and being able to like essentially uh, apply pressure collectively um, toward employ employers. And so I don't, I don't know how to mitigate that. Right. Because it's incredibly difficult to organize when everyone is just kind of like forced to be in their own bubble where it's like work, 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 work. They're watching me. I got to work, 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 work. I got to get this done. Deadlines. There's there's no time for people to connect, and I think that's a huge problem. Right, and I I'm, I'm previewing uh, a, a book that's coming out next year by you know Vivek Chibber, who's uh, my mentor, and um, so I'm not, I'm not this is not my argument and taking it from spoiler alert. I deeply respect spoiler yeah, alert. a little bit of a spoiler uh, yeah, but I mean the thing is uh, like. Classical Marxism, kind of the classical left of like 150 years, 100 years ago, you know, basically says we live in a class society. Yes, that means it's ex exploitative, that people resist their exploitation uh, or they, they, yeah, they resist it, but that they don't necessarily, the classical left said that they resist it collectively, that there's this whole notion of the working class being the grave diggers, that capitalism is creating its own grave diggers by yeah. kind of creating the the working class. And yeah. there was this kind of tautological or like deterministic argument that, 
because capitalism is here and it's horrific for most people, it necessarily means that people are going to, working people are going to band together collectively and fight back. And what we've seen Mm -hmm. is that that's not the norm, in fact, that the norm is typically fighting back individually. That for the exact reason that Anna's saying that there are inbuilt mechanisms to to the workplace and to capitalism broadly Mm -hmm. that allows the boss to have so much control and so much uh, political force and strength over their workers that all the risk involved in acting collectively with workers is front-loaded. So it's the yeah. it's what Nando's talking about right now with the Amazon workers, that this is a massive hurdle that, you know, if they don't succeed, it doesn't mean that, like, you know, uh, their fellow co-workers are, like, traitors. It just means, like, the boss is so, especially Amazon, is so powerful that yeah. it's, you know, and this is, again, this is the, the part of the role for organizers and socialists and activists that, like, we have to be the ones to help overcome that hurdle. Like we have to be able to make the case that collective fights are, uh, are are the way forward rather than just kind of holding your head down, trying your best to just get through the work week. Um, And it's not entirely up. It's not just like willpower. It's not just like, Oh, if only we just talk to enough people, like there's historical forces. Like again, if, if uh, other workers go out on strike, then workers say like, Oh, maybe this is viable. Like it's not going to come just from, some guy on YouTube saying, like, you know, you should probably join a union and fight. Like, it's it's a lot of things that have to happen simultaneously, both kind of at the macro level, but, like, you know, as individuals, as people hopefully watching this that, you know, are socialists and are politically minded, like, part of our job is to connect with people and to make the case that uh, a better world is possible, that people deserve far more than what they get right now, um, and that, uh, there's reason to keep fighting. Yeah. Reason to keep fighting. I have, um, one more question. How about that? Okay, Alrighty. do it. Um, and I don't know, uh, you know, we haven't talked about this before, but someone was asking about thoughts on the, the big labor and farmers protests and strikes in India. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, I, I don't have, I'm not an expert on India by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it is just like, it's just absolutely remarkable in terms of the sheer numbers of it. And it's, and it's, you know, India is an unbelievably poor country, um, um, with, you know, and it's, and it's enormous. I mean, 250 million people. I mean, that's, India has about a billion people. So 250 million people is like a quarter of the population, more or less, um, that is astounding. I mean, it just shows that there are there are things that are possible. I mean, it's um, I mean, we'll see what comes of it. And, and but but it, it is just like just a remarkable thing that is happening that that shows just just how powerful things can be and how how like what Corey Robin was saying, that sometimes it seems that the that the, the sort of um, the power structures are as are more undefeatable like just right before they become defeated you know like that the that that the ancien regime in 1786 looked like it was going to be around forever likewise the soviet union three years before it collapsed looked like it was going to be around forever um things happen you know history happens things institutions crumble uh people rise up and defeat things it's it's it, it it happens so um that's that's the one thing i take from the india thing is that like 
you know, 250 million people can band together and and demand change. And that that's just that's that's an absolutely crazy thing. Yeah, I would. Um, there's a really great piece in Jacobin right now by Thomas uh, Crowley. I'm going to put that in the chat and I'll put it in the description later. Um, that it's a great overview of what's going on. And I think mm. Crowley is a, is a good analysis of um, both like the historic uh, importance of this, that this, this is probably the biggest strike in human history. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but also kind of the strategic upshot of like, you know, what are, you know, both like for the left, um, kind of the, the organized left in, in India, um, the various, there's various people don't, for people who don't really know Indian left politics, there are many different, uh, left political parties and communist parties. And, um, uh, there's a lot of Maoists in India. Um, oh yeah. Just and, like, just like, uh, Mike Tyson. Just <laughs> Was Mike Tyson is a Maoist. Wait, what? He's a Maoist. Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson has a tattoo of Mao on his arm, and you know how he just had, he had a fight with Roy Jones Jr. last week. Um, he 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 boxed Roy Jones. He came back. He came out of retirement, and in like the 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 pump up video, like in before the fight, it's him like shadow boxing, and he's going, "I'm gonna fight with the power of Mao. The power of Mao is within me." You know, like <laughs> hell yeah. Oh, you you haven't seen that, Kale? That no. that has to be that has to be the back. You know how Jacobin always has like a jokey back cover quote. Uh, <laughs> I'll send you the Mike Tyson clip uh, because yeah, it's it's the best. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure the next issue is like what to expect from the Biden administration. So it'd be great to have fight with the power of Mao on the back. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But anyways, I, I would say I would refer people to to Crowley's work on this. I think I think he's probably the the one to look at. Um, and there was a great piece in Catalyst by uh, Anash uh, Vanek on uh-huh. the various Maoist groups in India to kind of get a sense. If you think the American left is bad, the yeah. Indian left is is. Uh, I mean, you can read it. It's it's interesting. Um, but uh, I think I think we should end on Mike Tyson. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. That I'm is so, a high point. I'm sending it to you right now. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you, Kale. And thank you, Nando. Thank you for everyone who's watching. And uh, we did miss you guys last week, uh, but we're back, baby. We're back. We're back. And, uh, we're back. <laughs> we're going to come here next week and the week after that. Definitely. And if you guys enjoyed the show, please share it. Uh, that's the best way to get eyeballs on this program and increase yes. Um, viewership, which we would absolutely love and appreciate. Anyway, thank you again. Have an awesome weekend and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.